Hello and welcome to the Business Growth Accelerator. In today's episode, we will share a recording of me being a guest of the Professional Failure Podcast. We're going to talk about why is it important to fail and fail forward in basically everything you do in life. It's a really unique episode, different than most of the stuff that I share, but incredibly valuable for anything in life and in business. Growing a business is tough. Believe me, I know. I'm a serial entrepreneur with three startups behind me. One went public, the second busted because of bad decisions by the CEO. That was me, by the way. And the third grew to $100 million in sales as part of a larger company that got sold. It took me 20 years to learn how to do it right, but now I'm on a quest to get you there much faster. I'm hosting senior business leaders, entrepreneurs, and world-class experts. Together, we search for gold, strategies, systems, processes, and practical tips that you can implement to grow your business. You will hear fascinating business stories, really funny moments, and lots of actionable business tips. Welcome to the Business Growth Accelerator. Welcome back to another episode of the Professional Failure Podcast. Today's guest, Isar Matis. Isar is a serial entrepreneur, investor, small business mentor, speaker, and host of the Business Growth Accelerator Podcast. And he was also a former F-16 pilot for the Israeli Army. In today's episode, he talks about leaving the Air Force for a small startup, he also talks about having access to the CEO of a billion-dollar company and how valuable that was and how he still looks at him as one of his, his early mentors. And then he also talks about taking mental notes on everything he does to avoid future failures, which I love. He also talks about how he learned from his Air Force training. And this is actually one of the from one of the conversations in Orlando where I met him. He told me the story of how they used to train in the Air Force. And basically, they were required to come in after trainings and share how they messed up and how it's so counterintuitive uh, to what we experience today and how it's almost we're almost rigged in a way where we don't want to share our, our failures or mess ups. He also tells the story of losing his life savings when the real estate market dipped in 08 in Florida and what that meant for him. And he talks about not being able to sleep for a while and then how he worked through it. So pretty powerful and raw story. And then he also says something near the end that I really loved was relational over transactional. And it's something really important to think about because I think too often we can get stuck in just transaction after transaction and we forget there's people on the other side. So I love that he brought it back for his motto or his purpose for his business was relational over transactional. So I think you'll enjoy the interview. Isar has a lot of wisdom in several big life areas. So without further ado, here is Isar Matis. Isar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I know this is going to be fun. We had a great conversation here in Orlando face-to-face, -face, and I'm sure this is going to be great as well. Absolutely. Yeah, you told me some fun stories. So maybe tell me the story of your journey to entrepreneurship and then even to your current podcast. How did all that happen? Wow. How long do we have? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> in, in a few minutes, I, I, I was an Air Force F-16 pilot. That was my original background. I left the Air Force, joined a small tech startup that did the training and simulation solution on PCs. 
which today sounds obvious, but back then we were the only one on the planet that did that. So that was interesting. From there, I moved to the US with them. So I'm originally from Israel, moved to the US with that tech startup, their uh, business development, sales, marketing, all the different hats that bring money to the company. Left that, started my own startup in, let's call it affiliate marketing, not exactly, but kind of. So that was another startup that I started. And in there, my main investor wanted to also do something similar in his company. He had a large wholesale travel company, which he wanted to also have a B2C arm, like a consumer-facing platform, which I was brought in to develop. And when that company got sold, the big company got sold, big merger, I got a fancy role with a big budget and I didn't really like the atmosphere and the culture and everything. And I left and then I was bored because I was looking to talk to interesting business people like I used to, which led me to start my podcast. So that's how I ended up with a podcast. That's awesome. And then I have to go back to the Air Force pilot. Have you seen Top Gun yet? The new movie Top Gun? I'm going tomorrow. So don't say a thing if you've okay, seen it. Well, I'm literally just... going to watch. I was actually asking myself how many people have watched the first one in the last three weeks. And it's probably a gazillion people. Yeah, I watched it. My wife and I watched it like, uh, I don't know, a week ago. Just just so we had an idea because we hadn't yeah, seen yeah. maybe the whole thing. But anyway, I was just curious. We saw it, it's good. I won't ruin anything. But I was curious your feedback on if it's if it's true to life, if, if that's actually how it is. But I'll, I'll check so in. So the first one totally it. wasn't. Yeah. And the first one came out just before I started flight school. So it was like, I've watched segments of it and the whole thing probably 50 times mm -hmm. and it's totally 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 unrealistic the new one i don't know because i haven't watched it yet but i will send you a message after i watch it tomorrow night perfect it seemed more realistic than the first one the first one could kind of be cheesy especially if you're a pilot and you understand what's going on so that that'll be interesting i'll look forward to that message so let me know how yeah. it goes Cool. Well, as far as uh, going back and kind of your journey to entrepreneurship, can you tell me what what person or what people come to mind when you hear the word mentor? The two people that probably come to mind first is my previous boss, the guy from the travel company, and my dad are probably my two biggest mentors in life. And can you kind of give an idea of, of your boss? I assume your dad was before your boss, but maybe some some ideas or, or stories that they they helped you along in the journey and how they how they helped form who you are. So I would say a few different things. Both of them very much of action people versus talking people. So practice what you preach. I'll lead the way. This is how I'm doing things. I think it's the right way. And so that's definitely something I've learned from both of them. Working hard to achieve whatever goals you want to achieve is another thing that I've learned from both of them. I think from my previous boss, his name is Uri Argov, by the way, uh, for those who want to look him up, he was in empowering the people that worked in the company on every level from tools that you need, budget that you need, training that you need to make mistakes and figure them out and correct them, as well as access to him. So he was, you know, a CEO of a, when we sold the company, over a billion dollar in revenue. So it's a big company. Uh -huh. And yet literally his door was open to anybody who wanted to get in and grab some time and talk to him and ask him questions, which is very, very uncommon once you get to, you know, hundreds of employees and billions of dollars in revenue. So very much the concept that if you develop the right culture within a company, 
that if you distill the right core values within the people that work with you and not for you, and you allow people to grow within the business by providing them literally everything they need, both on the personal level as well as the professional level, they will help make the company successful. And so that's how I'm trying to model the, my business under these kind of concepts. That's really good. Yeah. I like the word culture because I know like it's thrown around a lot, but that is, it sounds like an amazing culture. What, what he built there. Yep, absolutely. And then tell me a little bit about your dad. How did your dad, you know, affect some of the decisions you, you make and actions you take today? My dad is one of the hardest working people I know, always very, very focused on doing the right thing both on the personal life as well as in, in his business career. And I'm very much the same. You know, I will work hard at what I'm trying to get and I will try to help other people do it by doing the right thing and setting up the, the model of what is the right thing to do. That's really good. Can you think of any lessons that you've learned from either one of them or someone else that you, you actually got to skip the failure and didn't have to experience that yourself? Wow. That's a great question. Probably more than a few, only then I skipped the failure. So I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> not, no, it actually did not happen. But I would say with, with my previous boss, the concept of allowing people to grow and giving them the freedom to do the stuff that they believe needs to be done versus telling people what to do help me build the teams I built afterwards in a very successful way by, and it goes back to picking the right people, right? So if I go back to, you wanted little stories, when they, when he hired me, the, it was the second time he was trying to hire me. The first time the timing wasn't right for me, which in retrospect was a mistake, but, but it doesn't matter. He came to me and said, I really like what you do. I think you're a really smart person. I want you to come and work for me. And I asked, okay, what, in what role? I said, I don't know. Well, figure it out. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like you, you got to have like an open position. It's a big company. What are you hiring for? And it's like nothing. I just want you because I think you're a smart guy and I think your trajectory will make you very successful. And I want you by my side, which again is a very different mindset than a lot of people of there's a specific role I need the person in, or this person is too smart. I don't want him to be right next to me because it's going to make me look bad. Yeah. And it really taught me to, I want to hire the biggest talent there is, not necessarily the people who have the most impressive stuff on paper. So, oh, he's a Harvard graduate and he, you know, graduated cum laude and he was, no, it's people that you think have a talent and a drive. And I think drive and mindset is at least as important as technical skills and surround yourself with as many people as that as possible give them the tools they need in order to thrive and it will happen. And even the team we built in his company, so the little startup run in his company grew to be extremely successful because I had the right people around me, not because of me. Yeah. That's such a good lesson for, for people to hear and learn because I completely agree. And I know even when we're trying to work with people, we really look for good people we can trust, high character people. We don't really, I don't really care about their skill at first. Obviously you want the skill to be high, but exactly what you're saying, you hire good people, you surround yourself with good people, 
and they'll kind of form into the role that that they need to take on. But that's that's really it's a really good story. Well, let's kind of skip ahead to some failures. Can you tell me how failures have played a role in your success to date? So I'll go back to my Air Force experience, right? So I, like I said, I was an F-16 pilot in the Air Force, and maybe the hardest thing psychologically. Can you think of any? lessons that you've learned from either one of them or someone else that you, you actually got to skip the failure and didn't have to experience that yourself? Wow. That's a great question. Probably more than a few, only then I skipped the failure. So I didn't know. Yeah. (laughs) No, no, it actually did not happen, but I would say with, with my previous boss, the concept of allowing people to grow and giving them the freedom to do the stuff that they believe needs to be done versus telling people what to do, help me build the teams I built afterwards in a very successful way by, and it goes back to picking the right people, right? So if I go back to, you wanted little stories, when they, when he hired me, the, it was the second time he was trying to hire me. The first time, the timing wasn't right for me, which in retrospect was a mistake, but, but it doesn't matter. He came to me and said, I really like what you do. I think you're a really smart person. I want you to come and work for me. And I asked, okay, what, in what role? I said, I don't know. We'll figure it out. And I'm Interesting. like, what do you mean? Like, you, you got to have like an open position. It's a big company. What are you hiring for? And it's like, nothing. I just want you because I think you're a smart guy and I think your trajectory will make you very successful and I want you by my side which again is a very different mindset than a lot of people of there's a specific role I need the person in, or this person is too smart. I don't want him to be right next to me because it's going to make me look bad. Yeah. And it really taught me to, I want to hire the biggest talent. There is not necessarily the people who have the most impressive stuff on paper. So, Oh, he's a Harvard graduate and he, you know, graduated cum laude and he was, no, it's people that you think have a talent and a drive and I think drive and mindset is at least as important as technical skills and surround yourself with as many people as that as possible, give them the tools they need in order to thrive and it will happen. And even the team we built in his company, so the little startup run in his company grew to be extremely successful because I had the right people around me, not because of me. To do when you join the Air Force is debriefing. So the Air Force probably any Air Force, but definitely the Israeli Air Force is built about around consistent and constant debriefing of everything you do, which means at the end of each sortie, at the, at the end of each maneuver, you come out and say in front of other people what you've done wrong, which psychologically is a very unnatural thing to do. As kids, when we do something wrong, we try to hide it because otherwise we get in trouble. Yeah, And so we're rigged to try and avoid sharing what we've done wrong. When in reality, that's the thing that actually makes us better. When you fail and you're saying, oh my God, no, 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 you you haven't learned anything. But if you fail and you're like, okay, why did I fail? What were the reasons for which this has not worked the way it should? And you take either actual notes or mental notes to yourself to, I don't want to repeat this mistake. I want to take this as a lesson that I will do the next time. And I can tell you, I do this with everything I do. When I park the car and I'm not parallel to the lines, like, huh, 
Why did this happen? Oh, I was too close to this. I stand to this. I need this different angle. Remember this for next time. When I try to help my kids with something and it's not working well, same kind of thing. Like, why didn't you get it? Oh, maybe I was putting too much pressure. Maybe I need to make it more fun. Maybe whatever the case may be, I'm taking mental notes almost on everything I do because in the Air Force, you do this three times a day on every sortie, on every maneuver, day in, day out for 10 years. It becomes, it's not second nature, it's the blueprint, right? That's how I'm rigged. But when you take that to the business world, it's pure gold because everybody makes mistakes. Small mistakes, medium mistakes, large mistakes, crazy, insane mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. The question is, do you repeat the mistakes and do you take the lessons from one place and apply them in another place, whether it was your mistake or somebody else's? If you can learn from failures and apply the lessons learned, which are two separate things, by the way. So one is reviewing it as an opportunity to learn and trying to figure out what it is to learn. The other is, okay, what's the executional aspect of what I've just learned? So, oh, don't do this. Okay. What does that mean? So this is where the mental note comes in, right? The next time I do X, I want to do this, or I don't want to do that. And if you do that, you will constantly get better, which means you will learn faster than other people, which means you'll be more successful than other people in whatever it is you want to be successful in, right? It doesn't have to be business. It could be building relationships. It could be playing with your kids. It could be having your kids be more successful. It could be whatever it is that you want. It will accelerate the way that you can get to specific goals that you have. Yeah, that's really good. Do you remember how you felt when you first came in? I don't know what your background was before that with with failures, but when you first came in from that first maneuver and they said, tell us your mistakes, do you remember that feeling, what that was like? It's really weird in the beginning. It's It's very unnatural. What you see though is once everybody around you is doing it and you see that it's not looking for blame, but looking for a lesson, it really helps. So yes, some people get it in three weeks. Some people get it in three months. Those who don't, don't stay in the air force. It's very, it's really simple. They, they get, you know, they, they, they fall out of flight school, but they, you get it because the environment is very, very supportive. The environment is everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it in a very detailed way. And everybody's doing it, trying to find the lesson versus trying to find who's at fault. That's good. Yeah, and I think true. if you take that mindset and apply it, like I said, anywhere else in life, grow, you know, helping your kids do stuff or in your business, then that environment becomes a very fast learning environment versus, oh, you know what, Justin, you just up. I don't care. It's Justin. I care. What was the mistake? Why did it happen? How we don't repeat it again? How do we make sure everybody's on the team knows that this just happened and I don't even care if your name is on it or not. It's just, this just happened. It should not happen again. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how we fixed or changed the procedure that we were doing in order to avoid that. Please be aware. Please follow the new procedure. Yeah, so I love I, that. I think that's the, the part. Yeah, and what I'm hearing is it's not easy at first. It's not like it's this natural thing that just everyone, yeah, it, it, takes, it takes time to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Because like I said, I think people by nature, are very much pushing back because everything you learn in your early life is if you do something wrong, you get in trouble. 
Yeah. Whether it's at school or at home, you do something wrong, you get in trouble. Yeah, for sure. Well, can you tell me the story of your biggest failure and the lesson you learned from it? So you told me to think about it. I have a lot of big failures. So it was very, it was very You can go, you can tell several if you want. You don't have to just go Uh, to one. I'll start with one that was a huge failure on, on a personal financial level. So it has nothing to do with business, but it has everything to do with business. So I came to the US with very, very little. So I had, I came with, with two suitcases, no 401k because I was out of the Air Force and they don't save money for you. So if you saved it yourself, great. If you didn't, which is me, then you don't have any, any savings. And I was 31 when I came in. Wow. So 31 years old, no savings or very small savings. And I owned a small apartment outside of Tel Aviv, which back then was worth very little money. And the four or five years I owned it appreciated very, very little. And I came to Florida in 2004 and everybody was buying real estate and the real estate market was going up 15, 20, 30% up every year, Wow. 2005, 2006. I'm like, holy crap. Like I'm holding an apartment in Tel Aviv that does not appreciate when here I can use the same amount of money to buy a house and this will appreciate 30% a year. So I sold the apartment in Tel Aviv and bought a house in Florida. I think to this day, I still feel I'm the one that blew up the, you know, the real estate <laughs> bubble because the moment I signed on the dollar line, the market started falling. Oh, wow. And what happened is I literally lost my entire life savings. So I took wow. all the money I had, 100% of it. Because again, no 401k. So the only money I saved was the money I invested in that apartment in Tel Aviv, plus a little money that I saved here, which because the house here was more expensive. So I took 100% of the money I had, all of it, betting on this thing that everybody told me that always went up. And in my head, it was, okay, so what's the worst case scenario? It's not going to go up 30% a year next year. It's going to go up 15%, 10%. That's still better than the 2% it did in Israel. Mm -hmm. And you're doing it leveraged, right? So I'm only putting in, I think it was like $75,000 that I had, but the house is worth $300,000. If if that appreciates by 10% a year, that's $30,000 of appreciation on a $75,000 investment. That's freaking amazing. Mm -hmm. Only six months later, that house that I bought for $310,000 was worth $145,000. So I had zero equity in the house. I still had 200 and something thousand dollars in debt. And I didn't sleep for six months because I really, you know, when, when all you were able to say through the age of back then, I don't know, 34 is $75,000. And now you owe $215,000. You're like, I will never be able to come out of this hole ever. And I have a family to take care of. And what am I going to do? So if you're asking on a personal level, that was my biggest failure in life. And what was, what was the lesson you took from, because obviously that's, that's a big monetary amount. What did, what did you find through that? What positive did you find? So I've learned a lot of things, right? Is first of all, 
what I did next, by the way, and, and it took a while, right? Like I said, I, I really couldn't sleep for I was on it was the first time in my life I understood what being what stressed meant wow. meant, right? It's like I was stressed beyond the point I could control the stress. But once you get over it, I'm like, okay, so what am I gonna do? Like being stressed is not gonna solve the problem. And I think the biggest lesson I took from that is like whatever is putting pressure on you or scaring you whether it's a person, a situation, a business threat, a whatever the threat is, you have to deal with the practical aspect of it, mm-hmm. right? You got to break it down into small aspects of like, that are things that I now can take action on. So instead of the big scary monster, like, okay, what's the current situation? One, I mean, a huge debt. Okay, is there a way to get out of that debt? one way or another. Two, how can I make more money than I'm making right now to accelerate that process? Three, how do I evaluate potential investments in the future in a way that will not put me in the same situation? Four, what skills do I have right now that allow me to support those things that I said before, So, which I obviously don't have. That's why I made the mistake. And what I did was completely illogical from a financial perspective. It makes perfect sense in the way I'm going to say it right now. I took a big loan and went and did an executive MBA. Because wow. in my head, I'm like being $215,000 in debt or $275,000 or $85,000 in debt. doesn't make any difference. It's an amount that back then looked impossible for me to ever make back. But I'm like, if I do this and I can change the trajectory of my life, and make a lot more money than I'm making right now, then I'll be able to pay back both these things. So that was number one. The other action that I took was I found a way to get out of that debt. So there were a lot of legal law firms back then that helped people get out of debt because the whole freaking country was in debt and didn't know how to get out of it. So I did a short sale of that house, which allowed me to A, obviously lose every money that I had there, but that was lost anyway, but B, not be in debt. So we basically mm. sold the house at a loss and the bank forgave what I owed them. So that was a huge relief. So again, I think the, the biggest lesson is to take apart the big ugly monster that you don't really know how to deal with into small actionable things that you can actually do and then go and take steps in order to make progress on those items that mm-hmm. that you can now address. That's really good. And I'm kind of curious. So at the time the bank comes to you when when the the market drops and your value drops and they just is it like a margin call on stocks and they just say, hey, we we appraise this again. You owe us this money or how did that work? No. So so really it's very simple. As long as you're paying your mortgage, they don't care. Right. So I had to pay, I don't remember the amount, but let's say it was $1,400. If you pay $1,400 a month, no problem. They will, you can keep the house forever. But you're now paying $1,400 for a house that is not worth $310,000, it's worth $145. And you're asking yourself, and you're like, okay, what if I rent the house? Does the rent cover the $1,400? The answer was no. Gotcha. I rented the house out. I was making 1100 So now I need to put in $300 a month, which I didn't really have, in order to pay for something that will never be worth what I actually 
paid for it to be worth. I see. So I went to the bank and said, I want to do a short sale. Will you do it? And I had a lawyer helping me with all the right paperwork to the bank. And the banks really were in an interesting situation back then, right? Because everybody defaulted on their loans. Yeah. So they could grab the house, but now they have an asset that's worth nothing because it's a house. It's not money in the bank. They needed yeah. money. And so getting less money rather than getting no money and having another house that they cannot sell because nobody's buying is better for them as well, right? So they can write off $70,000 or whatever instead of $310,000, yeah. right? <laughs> or yeah, that makes sense. So, so for them, it was a better situation as well. And with the support of a law firm that knew how to follow the steps that the bank would want to play with, solve the problem. Yeah, gotcha. Well, during that time, I know obviously there were moments of discouragement. How did you work through that discouragement? How did you see it, see yourself to the other side? Like I said, in the beginning, I didn't. Yeah. In the beginning, it was very, very tough. I was in the worst psychological time of my life because yeah. I did not know what to do. And I literally thought, what happens if I get fired tomorrow? Like, what happens? And by the way, that was one of the things that drove me to do the MBA, because if I would have gotten fired, I would have had to leave the US and go back to Israel because my work visa was based on the place I was working for. Mm. And in Israel, the cost of living is higher and the salaries are lower. So my ability to save money again would have been significantly smaller. And I said, if I get an MBA, I can get a different job. I can open more doors. I can work for more places. It's a give me a higher assurance, not a guarantee, but a higher assurance. I can stay in the US, make bigger salaries, still stay with a relatively low cost of living, which by now is not relevant anymore. But back then, back then was very relevant. And so again, this was one of the small steps of like, how do I mitigate this particular part of the risk? Mm -hmm. So you leaned on personal development and education for what I'm hearing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And networking. Right. So, the, you know, a, a big part of an MBA is who, who you get to know and what, what, what positioning you can have once you talk to them. That's cool. That's really cool. Well, what about some goals or projects that you have coming up that scare or intimidate you? Wow. A lot. So, you know, I run a business. I have a company with two amazing partners, Pablo Gonzalez and Gina Tierno. And like any business that you run, it's always challenging. So you're always looking for the next thing. You're always looking what's the next growth is going to come from. And it's always scary because it's always betting on some resources that you can otherwise put in your pocket uh, in order to try something new that you're not doing right now that you don't necessarily know if it's going to work, right? So I could take home a bigger salary right now but I'm not going to do this. I'm going to invest that money in the next thing that we think will give the next growth of the business. And it may or may not work. And it's very, very scary because it's my family that will not have that money. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's successful, we will have more money. But if it's not successful, then this may turn to be problematic if times goes on dramatically and this doesn't work out. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, tell me a little bit about, I know you you had mentioned you're possibly changing the name of your podcast from Business Growth Accelerator to Return on Culture. What's the yeah. story behind that? What's the play there? So 
you know, the podcast needs to serve a purpose. My, when I launched the podcast, it was called the E-Tribe because it was a cool name that I thought about. Everybody was trying to build tribes and I was into e-commerce and I'm like, oh, the E-Tribe kind of makes sense. It's a good name. But, but it means nothing, right? So people looking for something will never look for the E-Tribe. And when they see the E-Tribe, they don't know what it's about. And so when I rebranded the podcast about a year ago, it was like, now I know what I'm doing. I want to attract people who want to grow their businesses because that's kind of the service that I provide in my business. So we help companies grow and we do this through helping them build a community and create co-create content with their community as a way to get people closer and closer to them. And we do that by creating a weekly talk show for them. So we build the strategy per company. We help them define who the audience is. We help them then define the topics that they need to talk about in order to attract the audience. We produce the show. We repurpose the content. We distribute the content on many, many different places. And that builds a community and the community drives sales. So that's what we do. So we help companies grow. So I'm like, I want people to look for business growth. And when they do see the podcast, they know what it's going to be about. And then they can listen to me. They can know about who I am, what I do, and so on. Yeah, what we've sense. learned over time is that really most of the companies that are our clients and that really see the value in building a community, meaning growing your business based on relationships, is people who have strong core values and care about culture. And so... This is why we're changing the name of the podcast again, because it's just niching down from general business growth to business growth that is core values and culture driven. And it's actually going to be called, so it's, you have to give it a name, right? You can't just use letters, but so the, the name is going to be return on culture, but the branding is going to be rock ROC. And the C is going to rotate between core values, culture, content and community, which are the four things we strongly believe in and that are the growth engine of all of our clients. And so hence the whole story behind changing the name of the podcast. That's cool. I love how you're able to, to pivot because a lot of people would just stay, they come up with a name and a year in, they're like, yeah, it's too late. I've already got the name. I can't change it now, but you've done it not once, but twice. I, I think that's really cool. So I've done it once and I'm about to do it the second time. So right now it's still the business growth accelerator. And probably within the next month or so, it's going to change. I, I'll say something, you know, you, you, if you do this, if you're in the world of content creation, and it doesn't matter whether it's a podcast, a blog, YouTube channel, social media, whatever it is that you're doing, it's perfectly fine to pivot if it serves the goal for which you're doing it, even if it means losing people who currently follow you, right? Because if I have a goal, and I don't know what the goal of, for you in the podcast. It could be just talking to interesting people and learning. That's awesome. That's how I started, right? I didn't have a goal. When I, when I went to, you know, you and I met at PodFest, the first time I went to PodFest, people were like, oh, how do you monetize the podcast? I'm like, you can monetize a podcast? What do you mean? And so I didn't have a clue. I literally did this because I wanted to talk to interesting business people and that was my platform to do that. But today that it serves a business goal, then it's perfectly fine for me to take a new direction, or in this case, it's not a new direction. It's just zooming, you know, more focused, who are the business people? What are the topics I want to talk about to have the right conversation to support my business? And if I lose people who care about Facebook 
marketing, which is some of the things I did before, so be it, because it doesn't serve the goal for which the podcast exists. And so that's true for any content that you create. Like, don't create the content to create content. Create content that serves a specific goal. It could be personal, could be spiritual, could be relationship, could be business. Like, whatever the goal is of the content that you're creating, figure out how it serves that process. And if it doesn't, then figure out what it needs to be to serve that. And some people are like, oh my God, but I'm going to have 25% of people are following me leave. I'm like, and? Yeah. Like, uh, if, if you're doing this for fun and, and the vanity metric you care about is how many people follow you, that's fine. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's okay. A lot of people do that. If it's serving a goal, serve the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it makes me uh, think of, people have always told me you leave good for great and don't be afraid to leave good for great. And I feel like that's, that's what you're doing with that. So yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I, I look at our clients and what we do for them, right. We help them be very, very intentional with every step of the process. What's the name of the show, who you're going to interview, why are you interviewing this person? Like why, why this guy? Yeah, he has a good story. Okay, fine. Does that serve the goals for which we set the show? Yes or no? If it is, what are the topics you want to talk about? Because it will help you build a relationship with the right people. It will generate the right content that serves the purpose for which we set up the show. When we distribute the content, which channel does it need to go to in order to serve that purpose? So being very intentional about the content you create is what we do for a living. That's my job to deliver this for other people so if i don't do this for myself i don't think people will trust me that much that's good that's really good all right so last question what do you look forward to telling yourself five years from now wow that we were able to help as many companies as possible see that being relationship driven over transactional driven is the right way to grow a business and that in the long run, it's actually pays off also on the financial side and not, not just on it's the right thing to do. Yeah, that's really good. I love that relational over transactional because in my mind, from what I've seen, it's a lot slower growth and it takes more work up front. But like what you're saying, the payoff in the end is 10 or 100 times greater than just a, a simple transactional relationship. Yeah, we, we call our methodology and we even trademarked it because we liked it so much. We called it the relationship flywheel because just like any other flywheel, it's harder to push in the beginning. It's going to turn really, really slow. But once it gains momentum, then you start seeing faster and faster and faster results while investing less and less of your energy in order to get them. And so the idea behind it is really how do you... if can I? Like, if, if we don't, if it's not interesting, we can stop here. I just want to... No, go ahead. Okay. So, a why relationship flywheel? What makes it spin? And really, if you think about how a relationship built, every relationship, personal relationship, romantic relationships, friendships, business relationships are built on co-creation of value, right? If we create value for one another, we have a relationship. Otherwise, it's not going to last. So, co-creation of value. So if you can co-create value with people, you can now create and nurture relationships. But if you record that process of co-creation of value, you now have content, which you can use to amplify 
the message and the things that you're talking about, that you're saying, that you're co-creating with the people you're building relationships with. That's good. Just like we're doing right now. This yeah. is going to turn into a podcast and probably snippets on social media so people are going to see it. Those people will follow you and or me or both of us. And now we can co-create value with them, which creates more relationship, which creates more content, which creates and so on and so forth. And as this grow, it accelerates and builds momentum that serves as less customer service, more clients, higher lifetime value, lower cost of acquisition, referrals, social proof, like all these things happen basically, quote unquote, out of thin air, just because you're doing these things and hence relationship flywheel. <laughs> yeah. And just in the end, you're creating more value. I love, I love that. I love the co-creation of value. That, that's just a cool concept. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to use that. I'll try. I'll, Absolutely. I'll, I'll point back to you, but that's, that's really good. Isar. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So if people want to learn more about you or about your podcast, where can they go to find you? So if you want to find me personally, then my name is very unique and I have to spell it and pronounce it every time, but I'm the only Isar Metis on LinkedIn. That's I-S-A-R-M-E-I-T-I-S. So if you find that name on LinkedIn, that's me. So that's, if you want to connect with me, that's the best way to do that. If you want to listen to the podcast, like I said, I talk a lot about business from a strategic perspective, from a tactical perspective, from an HR perspective, from all these perspectives with mostly CEOs and senior business leaders. And that's the business growth accelerator for now. And within a month from now, return on culture. And if you want to learn more about our company and the services that we have, just go to be the stage.live. And that's where you can find me. And the last thing that I will say is go in, if you're listening to this show, go and find the show on Apple Podcasts and give Justin a five-star review and write him a nice thing about his podcast. It's not easy to do this and to find people and to think about the questions and to run the interviews. So if you like it, that's your way to give him the high five was that you enjoyed it and shared it with other people. I'm sure Justin will appreciate it. That's super nice of you, sir. I appreciate that. And, and honestly, it was a pleasure meeting you in Orlando. It was great talking with you and I'm so glad you stopped by. But ultimately, thanks for creating good content and putting value out in the world. It's just, it's fun to, to see what you do. And I encourage people to check out your podcast as well. Awesome. Thank you cool. so much. Well, thanks, Isar. Have a good one. Your business growth is my number one priority in this podcast. To do that, I want to bring the biggest names that I can and get you practical tips as frequently as possible. And you can help. Visit Apple Podcasts right now, subscribe, download, rate, and review the podcast, and I would really appreciate it. And if you want my number one tip for business growth acceleration, visit growthaccelerator.biz right now.